Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Last week we learned that the church in Rome was not started by Paul, Peter, or any other apostle, but most likely started by a mixed group of believers. Today, Pastor Murphy tells us why Paul wrote to these young believers. It's important for us to understand how this church started. And we must discountenance the idea that the church in Rome was started by any pope called Peter. Peter was never a pope, never will be, never can be. And he's not the first pope. See? But that's beside the point. So, it's important for us to ask the question, how did this church get started? And let us begin to answer that question. First of all, let me deal with it negatively. The first thing I'd like to say is that this Roman church that we're dealing with here in this epistle was not founded by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, as a matter of fact, goes to great lengths in writing this epistle. And he makes it very, very clear as he's writing this epistle that he has never been in Rome. That's why I read the passage to you there. Notice what he says in verse 9 and following, he says, For God is my witness, I serve in my spirit of the gospel, that without ceasing I make mention of you all, making requests, if by any means at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you. And then drop down to verse number 13. Now I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto. Every time I made an attempt to come to Rome, something blocked me. That's what Paul is saying. I haven't been there. See, And it needs to be very clear that when Paul is writing to the epistle, the apostle Paul is not writing to the church that he's established. This is not a Pauline ministry. Paul did not lay the foundation for this church. But he often hoped to go to that ministry, to that church, to minister, and he never got an opportunity. If you look at chapter 15... And verse number 20 and verse verse number 22, again, notice what he said. Yes, so I have strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. For as it is written, to whom he has not spoken, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much, what? Hindered from coming to you. So when you ask the question, who founded this church? Who founded this ministry? The first thing I need to say to you, the Apostle Paul is not the one that established this church. He's not the one. Clearly, he is discountenancing and uh, he is denying in any way that he's the one that responsible for this particular church. There's something else that needs to be said here about this particular passage. The Apostle Paul, when you do a comparative study of Acts chapter 20 and Romans chapter 16. Now we'll come eventually to Romans chapter 16. But you'll find that in that particular chapter, the final chapter, the Apostle Paul sends greetings. And he sends greetings to over 27 different individuals. And if you go through that list of the 27 individuals that the Apostle Paul greets, you'll find the Apostle Paul mentions a man called Gaius. If you go to the book of Acts chapter 20, you'll find that there's a reference there to that same man, Gaius. In other words... This particular book was written by Paul on his third missionary journey when he was in the book of Acts at Corinth. And the fact that he mentions the man Gaius, both in in the book of Acts and also in in the book of Romans, indicates clearly that that's about the same time frame that this book was written. So Paul was not there. Paul was in Corinth long after the church was founded there in Rome. And I would like to say that it's important for us to, to understand that the Apostle Paul is not responsible for this 
particular church being founded. But yet he's writing to it. Okay. I would like to say secondly, uh, not only is Paul not the founder of the church, but Peter is not the founder. So Pastor Murphy, how do you know that Peter is not the founder? Well, again, let me ask a question. Is it conceivable that the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that Peter founded? That in the process of writing to that church, in the last chapter, he greets so many of the people who are in Rome. 27 of them I refer to. Right? 27. He mentions 27. And not once, is it conceivable that Peter is a pastor and Paul does not even greet, Hi Peter, how are you doing? See? So Rome has created a fictitious history based purely on tradition and myth when they claim that Peter was the author of this particular church and he was the one that founded it. He's not mentioned in all the greetings of Paul. But here's another reason. If you look again, as I read in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 20, the apostle Paul said he, he practices ministry based on a principle. And what was Paul's principle? The apostle Paul was a pioneer missionary. And the apostle Paul's principle was this. He would not encroach on another man's territory. He consciously avoided building on another man's foundation. Paul saw himself as a great pioneer, founding churches, establishing churches. So he stayed away from people where the territory, Simon Peter was in charge of a territory. Or, and he stayed away from that. He wanted to preach the gospel where the gospel had not been preached. He made that very clear in chapter 15 verse 20. He would not build on another man's foundation. So if Simon Peter was the one that had founded that church, it is very unlikely the Apostle Paul would have written to that church in the process. So there's no historical evidence whatsoever. And then the third reason, of course, and this is where the Roman Catholic has to concede. There's no absolute historical evidence, either in the New Testament or in the secular world, that Simon Peter was ever there in Rome at the time this church was founded. They even have to concede that. It is based purely on hearsay and tradition. But that's the Catholic Church for you. They deal in the realm of myths and tradition. See? We deal in the realm of truth and certainty, etc. So those are three reasons why I would say to you clearly that the, the Simon Peter did not found the church. And also I would say to you, the Apostle Paul did not found the church. And then there's a third thing I would like to say quickly. I would suggest to you that when you look at what Paul's statement that was made... It was not founded by any other of the apostles. Again, the apostles Paul said, I will not build another man's foundation. So this is not a church that was started by the apostles. Now that's important. That is, to you, that is just a small, that is not significant. But you're dealing with a church in the great metropolis of Rome. Founded in Rome. A place of complete degradation. A place where vice is so common. That immorality and all kinds of sexual perversion is so pervasive. But yet that church is founded not by an apostle. Well, how did it start? And I believe that the best explanation of how this church was started is when you go to the book of Acts. If you turn there for just a moment, the book of Acts chapter 2. You remember we're dealing with the day of Pentecost. And those of you that are familiar with the book of Acts will remember that at the great Pentecost, there were people from all over the world, all kinds of proselytes and priests had come from all over the, the known world to come to Jerusalem to the day of Pentecost. And what is very significant is what it says in verse number 10 of chapter 2. Verse 8 says, And how hear we every man our own tongue wherein we are born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites 
and uh, dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, verse 10, and Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya unto Cyrene and what? Strangers of what? Of Rome, namely Jews and proselytes. You know what I think happened? I believe that these people came up to Jerusalem at the time for the day of Pentecost. I believe they heard the great preaching of the apostles. I believe that they were marvelously transformed by the gospel. And that they made their way back to Rome. They became burdened for Rome. And I believe that out of that core group, those people, not apostles, Jewish people converted, proselytes converted, ordinary people that came under the gospel, who heard the gospel, who heard of the power of Christ and the resurrection, who saw the Holy Spirit working. They were so transformed that when they returned to where they came from in Rome, they started a little core group. And that is what I believe the church of Rome came from. See? You see, don't, you don't have to depend only on the pastor, on the deacons, on the, the people in, in, in what you might think in authority. You can be an influence where you are. See? Listen, there are people who start churches in their home. All of the churches that were started in Barbados, every single one of them came out of a Bible club ministry. Started, the one in Brandon's where I'm from was started in my mother's home. Bible club ministry. Out of the Bible club ministry, you started having Sunday school. Out of Sunday school, you started having a morning service. Out of a morning service, then you added a night service. And Bristol, you got an established church there. I'm saying to you, use your influence where you are. Antigua is a great place where you've got all these different nationalities. In this church uh, tonight, there are people from America, there are people from Jamaica, and there are people from uh, the Dominican Republic, in the back, there are people from St. Lucia. I mean, there's a melting pot. See? And we got to remember that when people come to this ministry, we have an opportunity to share the gospel. That gospel may so transcend some person, they leave back and they go back to the country, maybe not now, but later. And guess what? Years later, the Lord has done a work and began a church to start. See? It's a marvelous way in which God works. See? Not Simon Peter, not Paul, but simple believers who come under the sound of gospel and convert and go back to their country and share the glad tidings. And out of that, God begins to work and a ministry is started and the great church of Rome is started. And Paul can say, throughout the whole world, your testimony is known. The, the whole known world, the Christian world, hears about you. Think about that. And they can't say, hey, who started you? Paul did. Peter did. No. A band of people who went to Jerusalem, got under the sound of the gospel, went back and started the ministry and the church started. See? That's the way God works. It's a marvelous thing when Paul says to the church in Rome. See, Marvelous. How God's power can so transform. There's another option, however. You remember, as I pointed out to you, that Rome is the great metropolis of the Roman Empire. The London, the, the Paris, the New York of its day. Uh, people were constantly moving from one point to the other, coming and going. People from all parts of the world. Some were soldiers, some were merchants, others were artisans, some were travelers, some were the common ordinary people. And don't think that tourists just started in the 21st century. There have always been rich people, wealthy people, been traveling all over the world. See. But here's Rome, where everybody wants to get, and it is also likely. By the way, in the book of Acts, we read about Aquila and Priscilla in Rome. But they were not born in Rome, but they're in Rome. See, I'm just saying to you, the likelihood that there's some Christians who had gotten 
slave and probably in the travel as merchants and dealing in commerce. I was able as well to, to be responsible for that particular man. I believe that along these two lines is an explanation of how this church was started. Paul didn't start it. Peter didn't start it. None of the apostles started it. Otherwise, the apostle Paul would never have written to encroach on another man's territory. He said, I'd be very, very careful not to build another man's foundation. See? My next question, of course, is not only who founded this church, but what was the composition of this church? Who made up this church? See? Uh, again, when you go to the final chapter, you get an idea of the kind of composition of which this church was made about, the membership of this church, the very character and composition of this church, the list that is given to us in chapter 16, makes it very clear that this was a mixed church. And what I mean by that, some of these people in this church were Jews. How do we know that? Because when Paul wrote chapter 16, verse 17, he says, greet Andronicus and greet Junia. He said, my kinsman according to the flesh. Some of Paul's family formed part of that church. See? Jewish people were part of that church. See? And you read chapter 16, you see out of the, the list of names, not only do you find that Paul's family being Jewish are part of that church, but you find that the majority of names are Greek names. And the, the clear indication there is that there are mainly a Gentile church. So you've got Jews, some of Paul's family, you've got Gentiles. But then if you go through in the, in the list in chapter 16, you'll find reference to of a man's household. Again and again. Now anytime you read that word of a man's household, it doesn't mean a man's children. When you talk of a man's household, it means his servants, his slaves. And don't forget in the Roman world, the vast majority of people were not free men like you and I are. The vast majority of Christians in the New Testament days were in bondage. They were slaves. But yet in this church you've got Jews, you've got Gentiles, and then you've got even slaves. It's a melting pot. A melting pot. God had not only saved the Jew, he not only saved the Gentile, but even some of these uh, slaves became part of that particular ministry there. Then there's one other thing I would like to say about this church. It's a composite church. It's a, a mixed church with Jews and Gentiles and a lot of slaves inside the particular church. And Paul is writing to them. That's the kind of church that was founded there. And again, uh, when I think about that, the marvel of that is just astounding. The real marvel. that The gospel of Christ, the power of God, can reach Jew, it can reach Gentile, and it can reach men in bondage. See? You think about that for just a moment. See? Oh, what a great truth we have. What a great gospel we have. What a great God we have. What a great word we have. See? And our job is to plant the seed. Preach the truth. And let God do the work. See? A great mystery that takes place with the word. Just give the word. I tell people this. That you're not responsible for saving anybody. As a matter of fact, can I tell you something that you need to know? You can't save anybody. Did you hear what I tell you? You have never saved anybody. You will never save anybody. You can't save anybody. All you are is an instrument in God's hand to declare the message and God does the saving. See? So your responsibility is not to, to get people to make decisions. That's not your job. Your job is to be a witness, to declare the truth. Let the spirit work and they come to faith. When you have done that, you've discharged your responsibility. Don't be discouraged when you get up there and people ask you, how many got saved? Well, nobody got saved. But do you know the seed you sow today? 
Another guy come by and witness and it's watered. And guess what? Somewhere down the line, God gives the increase. But you think in heaven, what's going to happen? Huh? You think the person that was the final product of leading that person to the Lord and get all the credit? No, sir. It's a process. God will show you this person was involved in when they sowed the seed. This other guy came by and he watered. You just happened to pick the fruit. See? So don't be discouraged in the whole process of witnessing that you're not seeing tangible results and you're not seeing many. So people get discouraged about that. Pastor, it's not worth going out there anymore because nobody listening to the gospel, nobody responding. How do you know that? How do you know that when you tell them something is not something that the Lord puts in their mind to think about in the sleeping for weeks down the line? Something happened and that comes back. Listen to me. Just be faithful in giving out a witness and a testament. Leave this work of regeneration to God. Don't force ripe apples either. Don't force people into the kingdom. Final thing I'd like to say about this. that The Apostle Paul writes in verse number 7. To all that beware in Rome. Do you notice that small little preposition in Rome? Do you notice the difference if Paul has said the church of Rome? You see the difference? And I want to say to you. As you go through these different salutations in the Bible, the singular fact that is restated again and again, that when they're writing, Paul writes the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, the church in Rome. It is never the church of Colossae, the church of Ephesus, and it's important. There's no such thing as a national church. That's the point I'm making. Now, of course, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, is called the Church of England. The National Church of England. The Crown controls the Church in England, if you know that or not. The Queen is the head of the Church in England. Do you know that? Paul never had such a monstrosity in mind. It's never the Church of. It's always the Church in. And I hope that we can understand that. We must preserve that distinction. The Church is a gathering out of a community And they're bringing into Christ. So it it is of Antigua. But it is in Antigua. In other words, Antiguans get saved. But it it is not the Antiguan church. It's the church of God in Antigua. The corrupt conception of a national church. uh, You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. As a matter of fact, could I say something to you? Part of the problem that we get a lot of confusion about, we need to go back to what Paul wrote in the book, the churches in Galatia, not the church of Galatia. This idea of the ecumenical, everybody coming together. They don't talk about the churches in Antigua, the church in Antigua. But again, you read Paul's epistle, it's the churches in Corinth, it's the churches in Galatia, it's the individual churches. We've got to keep the language of scripture very, very, very clear. Other than that, we will fall victim to the idea that we must become one big conglomerate. We must be one universal church. And of course, I'm telling you, it's going to happen eventually. The Pope is going to be head of this great monstrosity, this great world sin. But we as Baptists must remember that we are not part of that. We are the church of God in Antigua. We must maintain that identity and that, that matter is so important for us. Now we can elaborate on that. But I don't want to because I want to say we need to avoid this idea of the super church. There are times when we need to cooperate. Of course we need to cooperate. We are are Baptists. We need to support these other functions. But the idea that we will link hands with everybody in Antigua because we want to create this church of Antigua. Or the church of Antigua. That will never happen. Never happen. 
And I know that uh, you might seem that I'm making a small point, but it's a very large point in Paul. The church in, not the church of. Two different things altogether. This is not, not a natural church. Small matter, but Paul, when you take Paul's word, you analyze them, you understand there's a reason why Paul wrote the way that he does in the process. Now, my third question tonight is not only who founded the church, what was the composition of the church, but the third question is this, why did Paul write to this particular church? There must be a reason. I mean, unless he's a madman. And uh, I remember that one of the, one of the governors said, Paul, much learning doth made thee mad. <laughs> but when you come to a great epistle like this, you must understand that the Apostle Paul had a reason for this epistle. And, and Paul does not leave any question in your mind as to why he wrote this epistle. Look at verse 11. He said, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be what? Established. The Apostle Paul did not found this church. Peter did not found this church. So, so, so far as we are concerned, no apostle or the apostle would have, would have found it because Paul would not have engaged in another man's foundation. But the Apostle Paul learns about this church. And the Apostle Paul is concerned not just about people being converted, but Paul is concerned that people be established. That is what he's concerned about. In other words, conversion is never the end, it's only the beginning. And those that come to Christ must be established. See, They need to be grounded. And uh, we need to understand that a person can be converted and still remain in an unstable state. Now why is it that Paul is so concerned about establishing these believers? Why is he saying I'm writing to, to establish you? Again, the Apostle Paul tells us very clearly why he wanted to write to establish them. Look at chapter 16. And look at verse 17 and 18 of chapter 16. He says, Now, brethren, I beseech you, do what? Mark them which cause what? Division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And do what? Avoid them. For there are such as serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the heart of the simple. In other words, the Apostle Paul realized that these people are converted. But he's also aware that even in the church of that day, there were people really who were not just apostates, but who had mercenary purposes and was abusing the church and want to deceive and mislead the church. Paul says, they don't serve Christ. They serve their own belly. See, all it's about is about money. By the way, does that not sound so modern today? Yes. You would think that Paul is writing to the modern church. See, We're in a situation, no matter how you turn on the television, on TBN or whatever it is, somebody telling you so see. Somebody promising you that if you... Give them a thousand dollars, the Lord will give you tenfold. Everything is about money. You want a kerchief that will bless you? Send so much and you'll get a kerchief. You know. I prayed over this oil. You want this oil? This is holy oil. I guarantee you it will grant you favor. So you, you send money for the oil and you wonder what has Christianity become? When last have you heard any of these guys preach the gospel? When last have you heard them preach about hell or heaven? It's always some message to, to that positive thinking, to think right and the Lord, but they don't deal. When else have you seen them a fine exposition of scripture? Anytime. 
It's all some pop psychology with a few words, some verses. But when it all boils down, it boils down to the same thing. God, this Christian life is all about you getting blessing and blessing. Nothing about trials. Nothing about testing. Nothing about hardship. It's all promising you gold that is just fool's gold. So Paul is saying, Paul is saying, look, mark them that cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine. The divisions that Paul saw in the Roman church was division over doctrine. They're causing offenses in relation to doctrine. They're causing division in relation to doctrine. And Paul said, I want to write to establish you. I want to give you the right doctrine. And he spends the first half of the book dealing with doctrine. Then the intermediate section dealing with dispensational issues about the, where does Israel fit into God's program. And finally he talks about practice. But the first section is all about doctrine. And in particular, Paul grounds them in the great doctrine of what? Salvation by faith alone. Fidi sola. Faith alone. See, That's what he grounds them in. And he's concerned about it. So he said, I'm writing to establish you. And by the way, notice the methodology that these people, Paul said, they use good words and fair speeches. To do what? Deceive the heart of who? The mature? The grounded? No, the simple. See, The young converts. The one that hasn't grown. The one that is impressed by human personalities. The one that if a man seemed to have a, a golden tongue and a silver lip, that they are enthralled by his words, his capacity, see, his ability, his eloquence. They are enamored with that. And so they attracted to it. And Paul said, I, I, I want to establish you because there are some things in, that, in the church that you need to be aware of. So Paul is, one, is concerned about people using fair words and speeches arguments. And people who ingratiate themselves with the young converts and realize that they're simple and ungrounded and then begin to leave them and, and mislead them. And I once again, I want to say to you and to me, conversion is not the end. It is not enough to just get a person saved. That person now has to be discipled and mentored. That is what ministry is about. It's not a guy made a profession of faith and the end of the story. Someone needs to work with him. Someone needs to, to ensure that he matures. And the best way to do that in a church is that some of you also sitting on the seat doing nothing. See? Warming the pews, but you've been saved. And you tell, I've been saved for donkey years, who cares? See? But if you're really concerned about the young converts, and you see a young man get saved, say to him, look, you know, can we have a Bible study together? Can, can I meet with you? See? And I wish that was the kind of interest that we had in our church. Being saved is not... That's not the end of the cell. The person got saved. They know there's so much to learn. How long you've been saved? You're still learning, aren't you? I hope so. And that's the importance. So Paul wants to build them up. Paul wants them to be grounded. And surely today there's no greater need than that, that we should ground young converts in the faith. And remember that false teachers are always not outside the church. And I I want to say to you, you've got to be very, very careful. A lot of us think that the great danger is outside the church. The great danger is not outside the church. It's in the church. You must always be on your guard. I forgot who it was that came here many years ago and preached the message and said the devil was in the church. And some people probably got a little bit shocked that he would make a statement like that. See? But you go through your Bible and read your, your Bible, you'll see that when Satan barks like a, a lion outside to persecute the church, he, he never succeeds. He creeps in like a snake and he teaches false doctrine and false teaching. See? 
And that's the most subtle form of it in the process. You read the book of Galatians. <laughs> and the apostle Paul wrote an entire book because here's a church rocked by false teaching. As a matter of fact, they're so rocked by false teaching that it seemed a complete fiasco to the Apostle Paul. They're robbed of their joy. They're robbed of their assurance. They've gone back to the law. And Paul asked the question, who bewitched you? Who cast a spell on you? That Christ was crucified before you openly. Now you go back to the beggarly elements of the law. And he wrote a whole epistle to that church. Because the believers were robbed of their joy because of false teaching in that particular ministry by the way the same is happening today there's so much false teaching going around and the false teaching has taken a different turn and it is it, not so much that today people are deliberately teaching false teaching they are but you know what the real problem is today is the person who says to people it doesn't matter what you really believe don't make doctrine an issue that person is more dangerous than the person teaching false teaching. You can identify the one that's teaching the false teaching. But the one that is saying to people, you know, these things don't matter. Don't, 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 this kind of thing, this kind of doctrine worry you. That is the more subtle false teacher in the church. And you've got to be very, very careful in that regard. So today you've got people who say, you know, Pastor, let, let's get together and let's practice ecumenical evangelism. After all, uh, what we need to do is to we just got to preach Christ. But then you ask them, which Christ? Which Christ are you talking about? And then they say, you shouldn't ask questions like that because you can cause division. But they see the language, the language, they're using biblical terminology. By the way, when you hear people talk about God, don't be fooled by the word God anymore. See, The God word no longer has the same content you're thinking. You think of the triune God, the omniscient God, the, the, the God that is infinite. Don't ever believe that people are thinking of the same God. They think about some force, some impersonal force, some higher consciousness. Don't be deluded by the language. See, Ask them which God you're talking about, which Christ you're talking about, which form of evangelism you're talking about. Don't, let them, don't be deluded by the, using the same lingo, the same language. They have got different content to those meanings. In the process. So we need to be very, very careful as believers. You know, I, I am not too sure if you're aware of it or not, but a lot of these, these, these Christians that Paul wrote to, a lot of them, a lot of them, paid a great price when they became established in the faith. I hope you are aware of them that many of them were thrown to the lions in the arena to make fun for the Roman aristocracy. The more blood that was shed and the more atrocious it was. People, can you imagine people delighting in throwing people in a, an arena and letting lions come out and tearing them apart and people laughing and clapping? You think our world is bad? You think we like blood? See, they didn't like, but they loved to see blood. See. But some of them, their homes were burnt. Some of them were subjected to some of the most inhumane injustices uh, you can ever imagine. Yet many of them stood firm and would not move and preferred to be burnt at the stake, preferred to have the head amputated with the guillotine, preferred to be crucified because they were grounded, see, established. And the Apostle Paul did a great work as far as that is concerned. And I want to remind you, 
because of the kind of faith that these people had and the way they were grounded and willing to go through persecution, I want to remind you that there's a continuity between the book of Romans and the great Protestant Reformation. I remind you that it was Luther and these men that came back to this biblical truth that the just shall live by faith. That there's only one thing called salvation by faith alone. I need to remind you that many of the Protestant men and women established in the same truth Paul established these Romans in were willing to give their lives for that truth. Sometimes I ask myself the question, are we a generation that is so grounded and established in truth that we were willing to give our lives for anything in the Bible? I'm not so confident about that, to be very honest with you. See, We make things that seem the pastor, what's the big issue about that doctrine, that teaching? Listen, there are people uh, in the Protestant line that died for baptism. Do you know that? Who refused to believe that sprinkling a person, putting holy water means that they were baptized? Who said a person is only properly baptized when he was immersed? Do you know that many were burned to the stake for that simple thing? Now, do you have that kind of stick to it, you got a big Roman church called the Roman Catholic Church that says, listen, we decide what baptism is. I can sprinkle you and you are baptized. Do you have the faith, if they had the same power they had back then, to put you in the guillotine, to stretch you out, to burn you at the stake? Do you have the faith to say, it doesn't matter what you teach, it is wrong. Do you have the faith to be willing to go to, are you, are you willing to go to death for baptism? Most people are not on the big thing, not the big doctrine. You ever heard of Latimer and Cranmer yet? You know where they went to the stake and be burned for? For the simple communion that we had on, on Thursday. Because the Roman Catholic Church taught that when you partake of the communion and the priest said, Hocus Post S, suddenly, miraculously, the priest changed that bread into the body of Christ and that wine into the blood of Christ. So when you, when you partake of the communion in the Catholic Church, you are literally eating the flesh and you're literally drinking the blood of Christ, even though you know when you taste it. It's just a wafer, it's just wine. But the priest said it is that. You've got to believe that. But why that is important is because they say that you receive grace. You receive grace the moment you partake of the elements. Cranmer and uh, Latimer said, ah, that's a lie. It's not true. There's no grace imparted by taking the communion. And Rome said, we'll burn you. They said, well, you burn us if you want to. But it's still a big lie. And they died for that simple truth about what the Lord's Supper is all about. See? I, I wonder what kind of believers we are. What are we willing to die for? See? What are we willing to stand up for? Somebody criticizes us a little bit, we, we become mute. We don't say anything in, in the workplace because they might call us Christian. <laughs> Just that, we are, we are intimidated. We're our mouth is locked down. We're afraid of speaking up for Christ. How are you going to die for Christ if you can't speak for Christ in a simple situation like that? See? When you come to these great books, you begin to understand what is happening. You look at the, the, what the church used to be, what the church is today. It's a pathetic situation. There's no comparison whatsoever. And part of the reason for that is this. These men were grounded in truth, believed the truth, and willing to give their lives for the truth. We hold the truth with a loose hand. See? My dear friend, I'm saying to you, the Apostle Paul said to them, I'm writing to you. And the reason why I'm writing to you, I want to establish you. Now, I'm going to stop there. Because the next thing I want to do is to give you a broad outline of this entire book of Romans. To let you see what Paul is going to cover, etc., etc. Let me make one or two things, say one or two things here as I come to a close. 
the reason why I'm emphasizing the matter that it's a church in Rome and not of Rome, and the words that we are church in Antigua, not the church of Antigua, is because when I look at the, the, the trend today, I, I don't know if it bothers you or not, but I see what is going to happen. I mean, you read the book of Revelation and you can see that what is going to happen is that all the churches, generally speaking, are going to come together. But not only the churches, the Buddhists can come together, the Muslims, all of them. And you know who is going to make that happen? The magic man is going to make that happen is the Pope. He said, Pastor Murphy, uh, you make these kind of charges and they're so unfounded. Why do you make these kind of generalizations? Well, let me, let me give you two quotations. In 1986, the Pope held a day of prayer in a place called Sisi in, in uh, Ethiopia. And he invited 60 of the leaders of the world's 12 major religions, including animists and fire worshippers. Now imagine the man who's supposed to represent the Christian church. He's invited 60 people from 12 different religions. He got the Buddhists there. He got the Hindus there. He got the animists who pray to rocks and to stones. He got the fire worshippers. He said, let's all come together and let us all pray. And then he makes this astounding statement after they come together and pray. Listen to what he said. He said, all our prayers are creating a spiritual energy that is bringing forth a climate of peace. That's the Pope. That's the man leading one billion Blind people. See? But here's a man saying, we must all get together. And you're an animist, you pray to rock, you're a man that worship fire, but you know, you pray and you're a Muslim and you, you believe in Allah, you don't believe in the triune God, but you pray and you're a Hindu, you've got thousands of gods, so pray to all the thousands of gods because the more you pray, this energy is going to be released. That's where the world is headed. That's where they're headed. By the way, the same year, he went to the India and he went to the University of New Delhi. And this is what he said in his speech in the University of New Delhi, according to you. He said these words, we haven't come here to teach you anything. We've come here to learn from your rich spiritual heritage. The world does well to pay heed to the spiritual vision of, the, uh, vision of man, the kind that the Hindu religion has given to the world. Now, can you imagine Paul standing at Athens and Mars Hill and saying to those people, I didn't come here to teach you anything, you know. I come here to tell you that you have such a great heritage in the Greek pantheon of gods. You got Zeus and you got all these kind of gods. Can you imagine Paul making a statement like that? But that's the Pope. That's the Pope. And listen, if you would spend some time to understand what is happening globally, you'll become worried about the train that the church is going. See? And people seem to be so oblivious of what is happening. Subtly, it's happening. See? It's the church in Rome and not the church of Rome. See? And I want to say to you as God's people, uh, let us get back to what the church is supposed to be. We are in Antigua. We are in Antigua, but we are not the church of Antigua. See? God has called out a group of people from Antigua and form a church. See, And that's a distinct entity from the nation of Antigua. Could I say to you that you as a church, it's God's special people in Antigua? Are you offended if I say that? Pastor, that means Antigua is not special? I didn't say that. But they're not as special to God as you would be and I would be. Because we belong to Him. We're His peculiar people. See, and Let us be very established. So that we do not be deceived by all this 
talk. And, and by the way, what's, what's the key thing that people want today? What the world wants today? What are they crying out for? Peace, peace, peace. And God says he will destroy them by peace. See, the one that is coming. And part of the one that is coming, the great religious leader, is none of that great, pompous person, peripatetic person going around the world, trying to bring everybody together, pray together, and so on and so forth. That can never happen. Let's ask God to help us, even as we go through the, the book of Romans, to learn some very, very valuable principles, and then see the application to the 21st century world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight, and thank you for the general concepts that we've been able to deal with in bringing out this matter of the book of Romans and help us to see that your gospel is power it's dynamite it is transforming it can establish a church in places that people think it's impossible to do your great power of the gospel has a work in people's heart that it so changes the society and the environment and just like a lily can be in the gutter you can take a church and plant it in the most terrible circumstances, even as you did in the church of Rome. And thank you for the composition of that church, a mixed church, Jew, Gentiles, and even people in bondage at that time. What a transforming message it must be to reach all levels in community. And then remind us, O oh Lord, there's not just enough to found a church and to get people converted, but help us to understand the ministry of establishing, grounding people. And the reason we do that is because there's always a danger of people who ingratiate themselves with young converts and who use language and eloquence and fierce speeches, etc. But they all have ulterior motives and all revolves around false doctrine and wrong doctrine. And we need to point that out to young converts. Thank you for those in our church who are working with the young converts, trying to ground them in the word and who have taken the time and the energy and made a commitment to try to help these people to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we here as a church, we remember that we are a church here in St. John's. We're not the church of St. John's, we're a church in St. John's. Help us to understand the biblical distinction and help us to be the church that we should be. Let us cooperate with those who hold a song biblical doctrine, song biblical teaching, but let us be on our guard for those who introduce doctrines contrary to scripture and alien to the mind of God. Be with us as we leave this place. May we rejoice in the marvel of the church like Rome, founded not by an apostle, but by simple people returning to that country after having heard the glad tidings on the day of Pentecost. And they're uh, sharing and gossiping the gospel as it were. And out of that comes a church that Paul says that your faith and your testimony is spoken out to the known world. What a great, great, marvelous realization that is. Lord, help us to know that you can do with this church, like any other church, things that people think is almost impossible. That we can have a global witness, even as the church of Rome had a global witness. Help us to put ourselves in your hand and let you do with us what you desire to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be sure to join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy starts showing us the major divisions and outline of the book of Romans. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230. Or visit during one of their service times.
Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.